0: Over the next uh, five weeks, we are going to be reflecting on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and ministry before he was crucified. And our attention is going to be focused on the Last Supper of Jesus with the disciples, the time of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Peter's denials, the trials of Jesus, and then on Good Friday, we will be looking at the crucifixion. And the story of Christ's final 24 hours is found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, they have very similar accounts. But when we come to John's Gospel, it's a much fuller picture of what went on on that uh, Last Supper. And uh, this morning our focus is on the, the Last Supper, on what is often called Maundy or Holy Thursday. And uh, if you look at your Gospels, Matthew has 19 verses that deal with this. Mark has 21 verses, Luke has 38 verses, and John has 155 verses just of what happened on that evening on the Last Supper, five full chapters. In your Bibles you will find John chapter 13 through to John chapter 17, all that happened on that one night. And it's quite amazing that in those five chapters, John doesn't on any occasion mention the Lord's Supper. Quite remarkable. And uh, I'm sure he had his reasons for doing that. Perhaps it was because John wrote his gospel many years later after uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke were in circulation and perhaps he thought enough had been said from uh, from, from the others that he didn't need to repeat what was said there. But on the other hand, John tells us so much more of what happened on this evening, the evening in which Jesus was betrayed. And if we didn't have John's account in our Bibles, we would be so much the poorer. Without John, for example, we wouldn't know that uh, Jesus washed the disciples' feet on that evening. And we wouldn't have the words of Jesus speaking to his disciples that he was soon to depart from them and not for them to be troubled, but to trust in God and that he was going to prepare um, uh, a home for them in his father's house and that he'd be back with them to take them to be with him. If we didn't have John's Gospel, we wouldn't have the, uh, the questioning of Thomas, typical Thomas, who when he heard Jesus say this, he said, I don't get it. Well, his actual words were, Lord, how can we know the way? To which Jesus then responded, I am the way the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So, thank you Thomas for asking that question. And thank you John for recording it for us. And John also tells us other things that Jesus taught the disciples on the evening of the Last Supper. For example, Jesus informs them that when he leaves them, he is not going to leave them alone. That God is going to send someone else. And um, the words in the Greek in the New Testament, which is written uh, in the New Testament there, are "alos paracletos. Now that might not grab you very much, but let me explain the significance of this. In our Bibles, the Holy Spirit is often referred to as a comforter or counsellor, or in some versions of the Bible, an, advoca- an advocate. But um, this word "alos paracletos is, is quite significant. Parakletos, as you can see there on screen, is made up of two words. Para, which means alongside, um, you know, as in paramedic, those who work alongside the medics. And kletos, to call. So parakletos is to call alongside, which, as I say, is often translated in our Bibles as comforter or counsellor or sometimes advocate. The word allos means another. Now, in the Greek language, there are two words for another. Another of the same type or another of a different type. And the word that uh, John uses here is another of the same type. Right, you're probably, your brains are getting a bit frazzled now. I can see it, it's written all over your faces. <laughs> Let me just pull this together and say why this is significant. Because what Jesus is saying here, he's saying to his disciples, when I leave you and go to my father, he will send you, allos paracletos, another one, who is just like me. Someone who is to come alongside you as a comforter, counsellor, as an advocate and you are not going to be on your own. When I go to my father, that comforter, that other one who's coming alongside you, the Holy Spirit, is in no way inferior to me. He will come to be with you, to help you, support you, encourage you and empower you to live the Christian life. And of course, we know that that was fulfilled 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. And we observed some amazing changes that took place in the lives of these uh, disciples who were running for their lives, hiding behind locked doors, and then they were supercharged. And uh, they were brave and courageous and took the gospel to other lands. And uh, we see that um, worked out for us through the, the book of Acts. So what else did Jesus teach his disciples on this occasion of the supper that they had together on that Thursday evening? Well, John also tells us of what Jesus said to them regarding their need to stay in a close relationship with Jesus. And um, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I am so glad that John remembered to write that down, because Matthew, Mark and Luke didn't. And those words have blessed and enriched Christians for the last two millennia. Now, John also remembered prayer, the famous prayer that Jesus prayed, perhaps the most um, well-known prayer, and most wonderful prayer in the entire Bible. It's often called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus, and it's found in John 17. And uh, we were just, Dan and I were just saying the other day to a a, a group of people who we were studying this together with, how wonderful that must have been to have been in that room. There you have the Son of God, praying to Father God a prayer. And they were privileged to listen in on that. And uh, this was an awesome prayer. And in those 26 verses in John chapter 17, Jesus not only prays for himself that the Father will be glorified through the Son, he prays for his disciples, but he also prays for us. Wow. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he prays for us. What does he pray for us? In verse 20, I pray for those who will believe in me. So that's Christians of all ages, down through the centuries, in all parts of the world, and also us. 2,000 years ago, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus prayed for you and for me. That's incredible. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. What's that all about? Well, through the message of the disciples, which has been deposited in our New Testaments, that they may be one. Jesus could have prayed for many, many things, but the thing that he prays for is our unity. And this was a subject which is very close to Jesus' heart. In fact, in John's Gospel, in those five chapters, which uh, focus on the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he uses the word love on 31 occasions. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another by all by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another so i guess the question that some of you might be asking is how did matthew mark luke and especially john manage to remember all these things that was communicated on that <coughs> evening did they have super brilliant brains how did they manage to do that well we're actually told as well in this same passage But Jesus said, the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So this morning we are standing on holy ground, so to speak, because through the gospel writings we're invited to stand with Jesus and his disciples. We can almost be flies on the wall. We can see and hear and taste and smell and feel the tension and emotion and passion of these very ordinary men on an extraordinary night. So, we're going to walk through this story together over the next few weeks. But, first of all, I think that it's important for us. Uh, to understand the context. You've probably heard that from me a couple of hundred times now, that when we're understanding or trying to understand the scriptures together, we need to ask the context, the rules of interpretation of the Bible. Context, context, context. And we're told that it was Passover and the Feast of Unleavened. And although those names are used interchangeably and they were in New Testament times, that um, there is a technical difference between them. Because Passover was the meal that began at sundown on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. The week that followed was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in reading our Bibles and particularly Old Testament, um, we may not pay that much attention to all the feasts and festivals that are given there in the old testament but on this occasion for us to get inside the story i think it's probably helpful for us to do that and to understand a little bit of background because these two feasts passover and the feast of unleavened bread which are still celebrated by jewish people commemorate the occasion when the nation of israel was delivered from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for about 400 years, and you can read about that in the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 12. And when God sent the tenth and final plague upon the Egyptians, an angel of death struck down every firstborn son of an Egyptian family, but passed over, that's where the name comes from, uh, the homes of the Israelites, because on the lintels and doorposts of their homes were smeared with blood of a lamb which God commanded. And to celebrate this this great national victory, each year the festivals of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were celebrated by all Jewish people. And that's what Jesus and his disciples were doing here uh, on this evening. And the preparations were often elaborate for this. Uh, Roads were repaired, bridges were made safe, wayside tombs were whitewashed. In case any pilgrim would come along fail to see a tomb and accidentally touch it and therefore make themselves ceremonially unclean and therefore not be able to enjoy the Passover celebrations. For one month before Passover, the story was told in every synagogue. Two days before Passover, there was a ceremonial um, search of every house for yeast, uh, which was symbolic of evil. And the owner of the house would take a candle and look in every drawer and cupboard, every nook and cranny, and just find, try to find yeast, and if they found it, would throw that out. Every male of the age of 12 who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem was uh, bound by law to attend the Passover. There was also uh, the ambition of every Jew in every part of the world that one day they would manage to share Passover in Jerusalem and I've been told that even to this day there are Jews around the world that they will share their Passover in wherever they are um, and pray that they might next year keep it in Jerusalem. I'm giving us a lot of background this morning. I'm sort of sorry about that but I'm not really because I think that it's so good for us to understand what's going on so that we can so much more appreciate the The text itself. Emperor Nero, he tended to belittle the importance of the Jewish faith. So, he had a governor in Palestine by the name of Cestius. And Cestius took a census of how many sacrificial lambs there were on that particular year in Jerusalem. And uh, it's written in history for us by the Jewish historian Josephus. And that year when the census was taken... The figure was 256,500 sacrificial lambs in that year. 2,056,500. And since the Jewish law laid down the minimum number for the Passover celebration was 10 people, it meant there were at least 2,565,000 people present in the city of Jerusalem for this Passover. Right, trying to get our heads around that. Wow. Now, I want you just for a moment to try to imagine the inflammable and volatile atmosphere in Jerusalem at this time. These Jews were celebrating an ancient deliverance that God had delivered them some 1,200 years before from Egypt. And yet, at the time, the irony is, at the time, they themselves were living... (laughs) Uh, under the governance of a new conqueror, Rome. So it was a tinderbox of national emotion. The Jews on the one hand were celebrating the past deliverance in the way that God had delivered them. And they were also looking forward to this new Messiah they believed would come and uh, free all Jewish people from their Roman overlords. So it was, you can imagine the emotions. Okay. Enough of background. Let's pick up the story, shall we? Luke chapter uh, 7, sorry, chapter 22, verse 7 to 24. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I can, I I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. The Passover meal began with the host pronouncing the blessing of the first cup of wine, passing it to others. And during the evening of the Passover celebration, there were four cups of wine that were passed in that meal. After the first cup was drunk, Bitter herbs dipped in fruit sauce were eaten and a message given regarding the meaning of Passover. Then the first part of the hymn called the Hallel, which means praise, was taken from Psalms 113 and 114. That was sung. A second cup was passed around. The host would then break and pass the unleavened bread. Then came the meal proper, which consisted of roasted uh, sacrificial lamb, was eaten. After prayer, a third cup was passed around and they sang the rest of the Hallel, which is Psalms 115 to 118. Then the fourth cup was drunk immediately before leaving and the meal was concluded with a singing of a hymn. Now, we're not given all of those details in the New Testament by the gospel writers, and I'm sure that they had their reasons in not doing that. But Luke tells us something here, that Jesus instructed them during this time to remember him. And I think that that in itself is is quite remarkable because many people, most people I would say, are remembered through what they did in their lives. But Jesus wished not to be remembered through what he did in his life, uh, not by his miracles, nor his teaching, nor his miraculous conception, but Jesus wished to be remembered by his death. And this bread that was passed, the unleavened bread, the bread of the Passover, which formally represented The story of the Exodus now comes to represent the body of Jesus. And Jesus said, this is my body given for you. And I would say that those last two words, for you, are two of the most beautiful words found in the entire Bible. That Jesus gave his life that we might live. He paid the ransom that we might go free. Jesus hung and died and suffered on a cross that we might live, and it was for you, and for me, and for all of us. The cup of wine, which previously represented the lamb's blood, which uh, was smeared on the doorposts and lintels, now came to represent the blood of the Lamb of God, who was shed for the salvation of the world. I suppose you could say that Jesus hijacked this ancient feast, this Passover, transformed it into a brand new festival of a new covenant and commanded his followers to look back in the ways that jews look back at passover but jesus was speaking about a deliverance that would actually make the deliverance at the exodus pale into insignificance because jesus was speaking of a deliverance from guilt and shame and sin and death and an eternity without god now for a Jew this evening of the Passover was so filled with such powerful imagery. The bowl of bitter herbs and vinegar and salt. It was a reminder of those bitter years back in Egypt where they were slaves. The flat cakes of bread, unleavened bread without yeast, were a reminder of the way that Israel needed to escape from Egypt There was no time to put yeast in the dough and allow it to work through. And then the roasted lamb was the symbol of deliverance of the lamb's blood that was smeared on the sides and the tops of the door frames in Jewish homes. And a sign that the angel of death was to pass over those homes. Now as Jesus shared this Passover meal with his disciples, I don't think you can miss the the poignant imagery here that's going on that he was fulfilling before them this prophecy of another Passover lamb, another Passover lamb who has been prepared for slaughter. Some hundreds of years before this time, the prophet Isaiah, in particularly in that famous chapter in our Bibles, Isaiah 53, spoke that an innocent lamb without spot or blemish was to be led to the slaughter. That was going to be silent before her shearers, stricken smitten by god pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities and isaiah prophesied all of this many hundreds of years before you see in passover the the blood of the passover lamb was sprinkled on the doorposts and lintels which brought deliverance but 1200 years later we have another passover lamb whose blood was soon to be shed on the wooden co- crossbeams outside the city walls, bringing deliverance to many. Remember what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we know, the old covenant was endorsed repeatedly year after year, the blood of animals offered by priests, but the new covenant has been ratified once and for all by the precious blood of Christ. And God himself has offered that. The Passover meal celebrated deliverance from Egypt to Canaan to the promised land. The Lord's Supper celebrates a far greater deliverance. The deliverance from sin from sin to salvation from death to life from Satan's realm into God's kingdom. The Passover meal transformed into the Lord's Supper that we now eat and drink and we will be sharing with each other in a few moments time. Um, We don't remember the the Red Sea and the Exodus, but we remember through this the cross and our Saviour. The Passover meal was celebrated once a year. But the Apostle Paul tells us that we celebrate this as often as we eat it. And these were holy moments. Holy moments. And Jesus had just instructed the way that he wished to be remembered by the partaking of the bread and the wine. And then Luke tells us in that reading that we read from chapter 22, that the disciples started arguing who was the greatest among them. It's almost breathtaking when you think of it. Jesus opening his heart. He's just hours away from death, a cruel death on a cross. He is speaking of his blood being shed. He's speaking of his body being broken. And then you have his friends talking about who the greatest was. It's astonishing. But they've been in that place before. Because there was a time when, remember when James and John, those sons of thunder, those brothers, when they were arguing amongst each other who was going to be sitting at Jesus' right and his left when he got into his kingdom. And this was something that was happening, that they were jockeying for position But they'd not learned that lesson. And Jesus, you know, and here they come again, just hours before Jesus was taken away from them. And of all the gospel writers, it's only Luke that tells us the context of why Jesus actually washed the feet of the disciples that evening. And it's only John of the gospel writers who tells us the detail of how Jesus responded to their childish and also ungodly behavior. Now, Jerusalem in those days, as uh, other ancient cities had streets which were unpaved, and uh, people wore open sandals, so feet got dusty in the dry season and very muddy in the, when it rained. And most homes had a servant or uh, even a slave to wash the feet of guests. It was a menial job. But since there was no servant uh, available on this evening, Of the disciples who met with Jesus for the Passover meal, no one wanted to give ground to the others. They wanted to elevate themselves, not lower themselves. They wanted greatness, not servanthood. And then Jesus, their Lord and Master, did the unthinkable. He took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, began to wash the feet of the disciples, drying them with a towel. And Peter, typical Peter, said, never, Lord. He must have been feeling a measure of guilt at this time, an embarrassment that Jesus was doing this. And Jesus spoke with him, and then it wasn't long before he went to the other extreme and, wash me all over, Lord. And you can read that account in John chapter 13. But the big question is, what does this teach us today? What's the lesson? Was Jesus instituting a ritual should be practiced by Christians thereafter? Well, I'm sure you're glad to hear, no, he wasn't. Relax, but and, and we're certainly not going to add a, a foot washing ceremony to our, a diary of our church. You see, the lesson is not in the act, but in the attitude which lies behind the act. That's the important thing. You see, a foot, foot washing ceremony would have very little relevance in our day and age. We don't wear open sandals on muddy roads. But the attitude of heart that Jesus is addressing has great relevance, not only for first century Christians, but also for 21st century Christians. And you might have heard me say this many times before, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to say it hundreds of more times if the Lord gives me strength, that the greatest we can become in the kingdom of heaven is a servant. You see, Jesus knew who he was. He was the son of God who came from heaven, was going back there. And Jesus could not be reduced or diminished in any way by his act of serving. By performing this menial and humbling humbling task of washing his disciples' feet. Jesus served out of a deep sense of security. And I think that's very relevant for us today. You know, if, if we're all honest with ourselves, we want to be esteemed by others. We want to be valued. We want to um be vu- viewed as successful and i think there's a, something in this uh, of this in all of us you know sometimes we're driven by our own insecurities but you see the point is this that when we know who we are in christ when we know who we are that we are sons and daughters of the king of kings that we are beloved children that we're adopted into his family that we are co-heirs with christ and heirs of god that God has a special interest in our lives, that he has a plan and a purpose for us to fulfill. When we know who we are in Christ, our serving others will take on a very, very new appearance to us. I think that Jesus showed incredible humility. and I just want to confess something to you this morning. I find it much easier to serve a humble person someone who is modest and unassuming and unpretentious i find that far easier serving a humble person than i find in serving a person who who is full of himself or herself Um, to tell you the truth i would much prefer to bring that person down a peg or two rather than serve them i'd much prefer to burst their bubble of self-importance than i would to wash their feet but jesus was different Jesus here washed the smelly feet of pompous, competitive disciples who were full of pride. Uh, The feet of a man who was soon to deny him. And more amazingly than that, the feet of a man who would soon betray him, Judas. And Jesus knew that Judas was a a traitor from the beginning. So what is a Christian? A Christian is a follower of Christ. And what does Jesus say to us in following him? What he says there is, I have set you an example do to others as I have done to you. And that is not just for us to memorize those verses or for us to meditate upon them, we're to do that. And as we do that, now that you know these things, says Jesus, you will be blessed if you do them. You know, sometimes, you know, we love having Bible studies on some of this stuff. We love memorizing the verses and quoting it, but we're called to do it and we are called to be servants In His kingdom and as we share this morning in a few moments time in the the Lord's Supper I want us to look four ways look backwards and as we look backwards we look to Christ's sacrificial love and sacrificial death for us we need to look outwards remembering that we share this together as the body of Christ we need to look inwards and that is by examining our own hearts But also we look forwards because Paul tells us that we do this until he comes again. So four ways to look. And during communion, the early Christians uh, would very often call out in Aramaic, Maranatha, meaning come Lord. So the Lord's Supper is not a a sad, morbid, hopeless memorial for a crucified, would-be Messiah who came to a sad end. St. Paul tells us in that wonderful, wonderful chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that chapter on the resurrection, he tells us, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, the crucified Christ rose again, triumphant over the grave, and one day will return from heaven in majesty and in power. The first time that he came, he came as a suffering servant born in a lowly animal shelter. There wasn't any room for him in the inn. But when he comes again, he will come in power and in glory. And he will come as the all-conquering king, the one who is the king of kings and majesty. The Lord's Supper is a simple reminder for us that one day, all of us who are his will enjoy another supper And that is the the marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven, where the perfected church will be with him forever and ever. It's a reminder that we will see him and that we shall be like him. It tells us that we will be delivered from this world of turmoil and anxieties of life. And from our weak human bodies, we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. So this morning, as we partake this, this bread and this juice Let us remind ourselves, two words, for you. Let's pray.